Well, welcome to this uh, installment of our CSA podcast series. I'm Mark Spencer, the Director of Public Policy for Christian Schools Australia, and today I'm joined by Professor Nicholas Aroni. Uh, Professor Aroni is the Professor of Constitutional Law at the University of Queensland. He's a Fellow of the Centre for Public International and Comparative Law, a Research Fellow of Emmanuel College at the University of Queensland, a Fellow of the Centre of Law and Religion at Emory University, and an external member of the Islam, Law and Modernity Research Program at Durham University. He's held visiting positions at Oxford, Cambridge, Paris II, Edinburgh, Durham, Sydney, Emory and Tilburg Universities. And I'm sure pre-COVID, uh, your uh, frequent flyer points were, were doing well uh, with all those positions. Um, in 2017, Professor Aroni was appointed by the Australian Prime Minister to an expert panel to advise on whether Australian law adequately protects the human right to freedom of religion. And he's widely recognised as one of Australia's foremost scholars in this area of law. Uh, Professor Aroni, welcome to our podcast. It's lovely to be here with you, Mark. Um, now, the, the expert panel you were part of, the expert panel on religious freedom, was uh, very extensive. It heard from thousands of Australians and met with uh, over 180 experts and organisations visiting each state uh, and territory. Um, the final report from that, uh, that expert panel acknowledged the concerns about a lack of clarity around uh, religious freedom laws and reported that a common characteristic of many submissions was apprehension, even fear. People being uncertain and fearful about religious freedom certainly doesn't seem to point, certainly seems to point uh, to the need for greater clarity in this area of law, don't you think? I think it does, Mark. Uh, As we travelled on the Ruddock uh, group from city to city across the whole country, uh, we spoke with lots and lots of people from lots of walks of life with lots of interests, lots of concerns and points of view. And one of the undercurrents that was very consistent was concern and to a degree, fear and apprehension. Uh, And certainly I think that if there's a lack of clarity, uh, it can lead to the uncertainty, apprehension and fear in the community. I'd say that there's probably at least two different causes of that, though. To some extent, there's just simply limited knowledge in the community about what the law actually provides. And this lack of understanding contributes to the anxiety. But I think, secondly, the law itself is in some respects lacking in clarity. Uh, And probably more significantly, there's uh, significant variations between state and territory and Commonwealth laws uh, relating to religious freedom in one respect or another. And that lack of clarity or confusion or complexity um, adds to the the problem. And then on top of that, there's confusion about the Constitution, the Federal Constitution and Section 116 and what it means and what freedoms it provides. And that's a nice segue into the next issue I wanted to raise with you. I've had uh, MPs, both state and, and federal, uh, even ministers in some cases, say to me that religious freedom is protected by Section 116 of the Constitution and that individual Christians or Christian schools have nothing to worry about. Um, you know, I heard a, a lawyer on, on the drum the other week uh, talk about uh, you know, Section 116 protecting uh, religious freedom in Australia. Can you explain to us in, in simple terms, a bit of a constitutional law 101 maybe, you know, what is actually protected uh, by 100, Section 116 and how, how does that work in Australia? Well, Mark, the first thing to recognise is that Section 116 is contained in the federal constitution. It's not contained in the state constitutions and it only applies to the Commonwealth Parliament and the Commonwealth Government. It has no application 
to the states, the state governments or the state parliaments. It doesn't bind them. It doesn't control what they can do. So just to be clear there for the, for the uninitiated, that means what you're saying there is that state, states can completely ignore Section 116. Precisely. It right. means states are free to enact laws that they think they need to enact uh, without any concern that they might breach Section 116. And so they are constitutionally free, if we can put it that way, to enact laws that interfere with freedom of religion. And there's no constitutional remedy for laws that do that. Um, we could talk a little bit later perhaps about state law in a little more detail and human rights charters. But look, there's another reason as well, Mark, and that is that even though Section 116 applies to the Commonwealth, the federal government and the federal parliament, the High Court has interpreted Section 116 in a way that hasn't given it a vigorous application. In fact, while at least seven cases, perhaps more, um, where people have argued, look, here's a Commonwealth law and it interferes with freedom of religion because of Section 116. Every single one of those attempts to apply Section 116 have failed for one reason or another. So the High Court hasn't taken a very vigorous approach to it and certainly less vigorous than the Supreme Court of the United States in similar types of cases. And that's uh, another beautiful segue into one of the other things that's been raised with me. I had people point to the protections that we have uh, under the First Amendment. Um, I keep being told we have our First Amendment uh, religious freedom rights. Um, have you come across that, that claim protection of, of religious freedom here in Australia? Uh, not very often, maybe because people are too scared to say it to me. Uh, but, look, to say that is to simply confuse America with Australia. Uh, the First Amendment is an amendment to the American Constitution. And yes, it contains a protection of freedom of religion alongside freedom of the press and freedom of speech, uh, but it doesn't apply to Australian law. Um, and as I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, the US Supreme Court has interpreted the First Amendment more vigorously uh, than the um, Australian High Court. Uh, and even though, you know, these are complex matters and there are many, many cases in America, there are quite a few cases where uh, the Supreme Court has held that a federal law or a state law has contravened freedom of religion. Because this is an important point to note. The First Amendment in the United States applies to both the, common, the, the federal government and the state governments, whereas in Australia, Section 116 only applies at a federal level and not to the states. So we're talking about not only two very different legal contexts and two very different uh, constitutional provisions, but... Uh, when we're talking about First Amendment, we're talking about US law, which is completely irrelevant, uh, apart from you know, any, any precedent or value that the Australian courts might look to it, um, but it really doesn't apply in Australia. No, it doesn't apply. I mean, Australian courts do pay attention to what is decided in other countries, including the United States, but just as frequently the Australian High Court will say, well, that's America, but we're Australia and we're different and we're not going to follow that. That's actually happened more than one time in relation to Section 116. The High Court said, no, Section 116 is not the First Amendment and it doesn't. One of, one of the things actually that the High Court has said is that unlike the US Constitution, which provides for individual rights to freedom of religion, the High Court's gone so far as to say that Section 116 doesn't even confer a right to freedom of religion. 
Now, it's a complex matter, and I won't get into the details about exactly what that means and the context in which the court said that, but it's another way of illustrating the way in which Section 116 doesn't have as much teeth as the First Amendment in the United States. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the High Court's treat it more as a constraint on government than as an individual right. Um, it's a I think that's a good way of putting it because yeah. literally Section 116 says the Commonwealth shall make no law an establishment of religion or the freedom, free exercise of religion. And so the emphasis is on not making any law. Look, I think arguments could be made for applying Section 116 more vigorously and more extensively to protect freedom of religion and particularly to protect the freedom of religious organisations to practise their religion and to express religious freedom, like international law suggests they should. Uh, And um, I've written quite a bit about this. I'd like to see the High Court, if it's ever faced with a question like that, to interpret it that way. But at this stage, we can't say that it has definitively done so, even though international human rights law requires that. Which is the, the third area that a lot of people point to. They talk about uh, you know, protections under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or um, more specifically the uh, ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights, to which Australia is a signatory, as providing protection for religious freedom. Can you explain in, in very simple layperson terms uh, how those international treaty obligations uh, impact on Australian law domestically, how, how they impact so upon law within Australia? And do we, uh, do we have those protections under those international uh, covenants? That's a great question, Mark. So international law and international treaties and covenants like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, when Australia signs up to them and ratifies those, those treaties, it creates obligations in international law. So Australia becomes, to an extent, accountable in international law to comply with those obligations. But international law is not the same as domestic Australian law. And just because Australia signs up to an international treaty and has obligations in international law does not mean they become part of Australian domestic law. The only way they become part of Australian domestic law is if an Australian parliament, either the Commonwealth or, in a sense, a state, enacts a statute through the parliament which implements the treaty or puts into the domestic law the provisions of the treaty in one way or another. And when it does that, whatever the law says has effect in Australia, uh, but it's only when you have that actual deliberate decision to implement the international treaty that it becomes part of domestic law. So, so again, in, in simple terms, unless uh, a parliament within Australia, either the federal parliament or state parliament, has done that in relation to an international instrument like the, the ICCPR, we can effectively ignore that uh, within Australia. Um, uh, in a sense, I mean, there are remedies at international law. You can make a complaint under the uh, ICCPR and other in- international instruments. There are international committees and commissions that have responsibility to review the extent to which countries are complying with their obligations. And so Australia has to report under that regime and reports are made on Australia and about whether it's complying with its obligations. You can also make a complaint that Australia is is failing to comply and even get a determination at an international level. But 
it's still up to Australia to take the legal action within Australia and give effect to whatever those findings might be. And there's always that distance between international law and domestic law in practical reality and, and in the law itself. And I presume that uh, those sort of complaints to international bodies in a similar way to a case going to the High Court is going to be a long and expensive process. It is a long and an expensive process. And unlike a, a case before the High Court, it doesn't then have direct application to domestic law. Yeah. Whereas the High Court or even the Supreme Court of a state makes a decision, well, it's enforced law in Australia. Yeah. So having talked a little bit about Australian law, I mean, internationally, though, there are strong protections uh, for religious freedom. It's, it's fairly common for uh, protections for religious freedom to exist internationally um, in, in some of the countries that, that we would be comparable with. Um, obviously, we've got the First Amendment in the US, uh, the UK, New Zealand, the European Union have protections for religious freedom uh, in, their, in their applicable law. Yes, that's right. I mean, so there's other countries have stronger protections of freedom of religion and it's probably worth commenting on specific protections of freedom of religion at international law that we were just talking about. So in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article 18 expressly requires countries like Australia to protect thought, conscience and religion. Um, And there's a few really important things about what Article 18 says because it says that the freedom of religion is a freedom both to believe and to manifest one's beliefs in your practices, in what you do. So there's no dichotomy between belief and action. Freedom of religion is a freedom to act on your religion as well as to believe it. So, so that's a, so just, just to be, make that very clear here, so it's not merely about you can believe whatever you want. It, the internationally protected freedom is has those two elements. You can believe it and you can act upon it. Uh, and not just act upon it individually, but also, I understand, in, in company with others in a communal sense as well. And that's where organisations uh, seek their protection. Exactly. So that would that's one of the other three really important things about Article 18, is that it protects freedom of religion, including religious practice, both individually and in community with others. And there's a fair bit of learning at an international law level about how that idea of in-community of others means what it means in practice. And it means the ability to form organisations, institutions, companies, uh, all sorts of group formations, uh, including as well, probably of most relevance to your listeners, schools and hospitals, uh, welfare agencies, charities, Religious organisations, religions, exercise their religion in practice by establishing organisations which carry out their religious beliefs into practice. And it's not just the narrow thing that you might do um, on a holy day, you know, on, on a Sunday or a Saturday or a Friday where you gather with your religious community and you go through your religious rituals. It's not only that. It's religion out there in the public places where you're providing welfare to the community or you're providing education to the community or you've established a hospital that you're running according to your religious ethos. And so you want to uh, employ people that reflect your ethos so that you can um, express your religion 
and uh, the good things about your religion into the community in that way. And that ties in with another third important aspect of Article 18 of the International Covenant, and that is that it protects the expression of religious freedom both privately and in public. So it's not just a private thing that you do in your religious community or even in your home or even just in your mind or in your closet, but it also is something that you do out there in public. So it extends even to engaging in public activities and even public debate. Um, there's nothing in the International Covenant that suggests that religion should not have any place in politics even, that um, people of religious conviction and people without religious conviction should be equally free to engage in political debate and discourse as well. So Section 118 is a very, oh, sorry, Article 18 is a very important um, provision in terms of protecting it. And uh, one of the other dimensions of it that's really worth noting is Article 18, sub-Article 4 expressly says, that freedom of religion extends to the liberty of parents to ensure the religious and moral education of their children. It's a remarkably important clause. Uh, and it's a sad thing that at a state level in Australia where we have human rights charters, those charters have failed to accord or express that parental right to educate your child in accordance with your religious and your moral uh, beliefs and convictions. So you, you're talking there about the uh, state charter. So there's a, a charter in, in Queensland, in, in the ACT and, and in Victoria, um, and, and they all exclude uh, that particular aspect of, of that very broad right in, in international law. Is that is that correct? They do. I mean, the camp, the um, the ACT one has a bit of a nodding acknowledgement of it in a limited way, uh, whereas the others uh, just ignore it altogether. Uh, and it's very disturbing because what you see is that, um, say in Victoria and in, and in Queensland, the, the government said, we are going to make sure that human rights are protected in Australia according to international standards. And we are going to give effect to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And when you read the charters that have been enacted in Victoria and Queensland, and you look really closely at all of the ways in which the rights are described and how they're protected and so on, at first glance, if you read it quickly and easily, you'll go, oh, look, yeah, that's, look, freedom of religion is protected and so is freedom of association and freedom of speech and all these other freedoms. But if you look really closely into the detail, you see quite significant differences and inadequacies in the Australian laws, in, even though they claim to be uh, implementing the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So, so one of the, the differences there, as, as I understand it, is uh, between two words, reasonable and necessary. Um, and again, correct me because you're the expert, but uh, the Australian, uh, all, all the Australian charters talk about constraining freedom of religion when the government believes it's reasonable to do so. The international uh, protections uh, only allow governments to constrain religion, freedom of religion where it's necessary to do so. And I understand that that's a, it's quite a different uh, legal test between those, those two words. Yes, it is. It makes a big difference uh, because a requirement of necessity means that taking this measure, implementing this law, is necessary in order to achieve some objective, uh, which is a very strict way of testing whether it's legitimate and justifiable. It comes close to saying that the law must be narrowly tailored 
and only achieve in a narrow, carefully defined way some objective so that it reduces the extent to which it interferes with the freedom of religion or some other freedom. Whereas a test of, of reasonableness invokes an idea of just some sort of more vague overall assessment about whether the law is reasonable or not. And it tends to be associated with an approach which will accord to a parliament a, what is technically called a margin of appreciation, meaning we as the court assessing whether this law complies with the freedom of religion or interferes with it in a way that's not appropriate, we will defer to the Parliament's judgment about this rather than scrutinising it closely to see whether if it does interfere with freedom of religion, it only does so for a legitimate purpose in as narrow a way as possible to achieve that legitimate purpose so as to minimise to the most extent possible the interference with the freedom. That's why a necessity test is very important here as opposed to a much vaguer broader reasonableness test, even though, you know, most of us would just say offhand, oh, well, it should be just reasonable, you know, a reasonable test is reasonable, uh, but it doesn't really work like that in practice. A reasonable test is a broader, more flexible, more deferential approach to protecting freedom of religion. So that sounds like one of those hidden legal gotchas that uh, all us non-lawyers uh, you know, glide over and look at, look at the wording of it look at the pronouncements by politicians and say that looks fine. But it sounds like it's a, it's a very significant uh, difference in, in law and in application. And uh, now that necessary test, is that an established test internationally? Is there lots of case law? Is, is that a very clear test? Uh, yes. Law? So you can see it being emphasised in at least three different ways. Um, the... Um, the international committees that have been formed to supervise international human rights have laid out very general uh, statements about how particular articles in, artic in the International Covenant should be interpreted and understood. And if you go to the uh, report in relation to Article 18 about freedom of religion, you see an emphasis on the necessity test. Uh, beyond that, when uh, the committees make specific reports about countries, you'll see them from time to time draw attention to some interference with freedom of religion in a country and test it by the necessity test. Uh, thirdly and beyond that, um, other international groups of experts have reflected on that. And there was a, a group of principles that have become known as the Syracuse principles, uh, which are a set of principles that are widely respected and acknowledged as articulating how do you test whether a law interferes with a freedom in a way that's justified or not? And you see in those Syracuse principles a great deal of uh, emphasis on the necessity test uh, in the sense that I've just described it. The law has to be narrowly tailored to that objective. Um, it can't interfere with freedom of religion more than is necessary to achieve that objective. Uh, and they place a great deal of emphasis on that and the proportionality of the law to the objective. And, um, and so, yes, I think it's a very important uh, thing. In the Ruddock uh, inquiry and in our report, that was one of the things we emphasised that I was very pleased we were able to, to see in the report, and that was that Australian governments and parliaments should be uh, guided by the Syracuse principles when they come to assess legislation that has an impact on freedom of religion. 
So you, we've talked a little bit about the uh, some of the weaknesses in the these charters in, in Queensland, ACT and, and Victoria, uh, the sort of broad you know, Bill of Rights type instruments that, that some people have been, been claiming is going to solve all our problems. Uh, and we've looked at the Constitution and Section 116 um, and the issues there and First Amendment and international law more, more broadly, how it how it applies or doesn't in Australia. So what are we left with in terms of protections of religious freedom in Australia? Are there, are there strong protections for religious freedom uh, around our, our nation? Uh, not really. Uh, not constitutionally, no. We only have Section 116, which has the limits we just expressed. And then in the ACT and Victoria and Queensland, we have the Human Rights Charters, which are themselves limited in the ways we've just explained. Principally, they don't use a necessity test. And secondly, they don't really acknowledge the freedom of parents to ensure the religious and moral education of their children. Look, another example that might be of interest has to do with the right to life. They all refer to the right to life, but they expressly say this does not apply to anything to do with abortion, which is like a fascinating special restriction on the impact of the, uh, the Human Rights Charter. And they don't the human rights charters don't have written into them limitations of that nature on any other topic except that one. And mm. why and how could that be? Shouldn't the right to life apply generally um, to any child? So, you know, if you have a child that, for example, is born after an, abo- an attempted abortion but born alive and is living, what, what happens then? You know, the common law has historically recognised that a child once born has all the rights of a human being and therefore this ought to be an obligation that any medical practitioner has to preserve and to do everything that can be done to protect that child once it's born, born alive. Um, But by saying the right to life in the Human Rights Charter does not apply to abortion, there's an attempt to make sure that it couldn't possibly apply to that child. Now, I'm sure there's lots of legal arguments we could think of if it ever came down to that, but it's another example of the way in which the Human Rights Charters are inadequate to protecting freedom of religion. Mark, the only other and third way in which freedom of religion to an extent is protected in Australia is through legislative carve-outs, sometimes called exemptions or exceptions, particularly in discrimination laws. Um, Because, look, we all agree that we don't want to see unjustifiable discrimination against people. But we also have to recognise that organisations need to be able to draw differences and distinctions when they make decisions about who to employ. Because if they want to preserve the ethos and standards and beliefs of their organisation, they have to appoint people that stick to those beliefs and practices and so on. It's just like a political party. Um, A political party is only going to let you into the political party if you agree with the tenets of the political party. It's the same with the religion. You become a member of the religion because you believe in the religion or you work in a religious organisation like you work in a political party because you believe in and practise the beliefs of your political party or of your religious organisation. So these exceptions and exemptions and discrimination laws are very, very important. However, each state and territory and at a Commonwealth level has its own regime of exceptions and exemptions and they are very different Some states provide more protection than others. Some are particularly weak in the protections that they give. And essentially, those protections are vulnerable 
because the state parliaments are not subject to any constraints requiring them to protect or respect freedom of religion. So there's a very significant vulnerability there. And it's not just discrimination laws, it's also laws that provide for vilification on the basis of religion. Now, no one wants to defend vilification against people, even on the basis of religion, if one understands that properly. Uh, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights has an article, Article 20, subsection 2, which uh, requires hate speech, for example, which incites people to discrimination or incites people to treating people badly on the basis of their religion to be made unlawful. But notice that it's when it incites somebody to act in a way that's wrong. It doesn't go so far as to say that merely criticising someone's religion is something that is vilifying them or merely saying things that cause people to be offended is something that is wrong. And, in fact, if you look really closely, there are quite a few reports made by international human rights organisations and, and groups who have said we need to be very careful about hate speech, hate speech laws or vilification laws because when they start to prohibit merely offensive speech, they're going far too much into interfering with freedom of speech and are contravening um, obligations under the International Covenant, particularly Article 19, which requires countries to protect freedom of speech and freedom of expression. So uh, we, we find this problem about protecting not just religion but freedom of speech as being really, really important at a state level. And some of the state laws, like the Tasmanian law, is, goes far too far in restricting freedom of speech and I think is plainly contradicting the international standards. And I would even argue that Article 18C of the Commonwealth Racial Discrimination Act goes too far under the free speech requirements as well. But that's not strictly about freedom of religion, but the same principles of freedom of speech um, apply in that case as well. So we have to be very careful about the exemptions and the exceptions uh, to discrimination laws and vilification laws because these are very important practical ways in which freedom of religion is protected, but often inadequately often protected. So it's uh, it's sounding to me that this is an area of law where particularly things that can can appear on face value or at first blush to be be quite positive and, and helpful. Sometimes you need to look beyond that that and look at the detail and and uh, that expert legal perspective to understand some of the nuances and the differences to see what it really means. And there's some important uh, competing rights and balancing of of rights here. Um, That's right. Yeah, that's right, Mark. And um, so it's too often you see in public discourse simply a one-sided argument around some particular objective without really seriously talking about taking religious freedom into consideration. Or often you'll hear in public discourse people say things like, oh, yes, we need to protect freedom of religion, but... And the but usually has this effect. It usually restricts the re religious freedom to what people believe in their heads and minimises religious freedom in relation to what practices they can engage in. And uh, what, that's where that distinction between freedom of thinking and believing versus freedom of practice is really important and a problem if you start to whittle down freedom to practice um, in a way that goes beyond uh, what should be protected under international law.
And we've talked about that difference between reasonable and necessary and the difference between between those two words. And I think uh, possibly language is also important around those exemptions and exceptions uh, as they're described in, in some of the equal opportunity and anti-discrimination law. Um, I've also heard them being described as being balancing provisions, as being a, a better way of, of describing those provisions because they're part of that whole legislative package uh, in that law to actually balance the, com- the competing rights. Um, is, would that be a better way of describing those, those provisions as being balancing provisions, deliberate balancing provisions? Look, I think, I think, Mark, they can be interpreted in that way and thought about in that way, yes. But one of the problems with the way the regimes work at the moment is that they're always contained in an act whose objectives have nothing to do with freedom of religion. And religion, freedom of religion is seen as an exception, not a central case, not the central objective of the legislation. So in that sense, it's always a second-class right. Um, it's, it's only an exemption and an exception, and all it takes is a little tweaking of the exception and the exemption, but it looks like a minor detail in the Act, and all of a sudden there are very major implications for freedom of religion, whereas the main objectives of the legislation have to do with other objectives, whether it's about discrimination and so on. You see this even in the objects clauses of the Act, because usually modern statutes contain a set of purposes or objectives that are stated up front at the beginning of the Act which say the purpose of this act is to do this, this and this. Now, most of these laws refer to the objects by reference to these purposes that do not refer to freedom of religion. And so the only reference to freedom of religion is in this indirect way, packed down in the detail somewhere as an exception to an exemption. What that means is that when a court has to interpret the meaning of all of these clauses and, as you were saying, balance them out, The balance is not an even balance because already the legislation is skewed towards the primary objective of the law, which is to, say, eliminate discrimination. And we all want to see bad discrimination eliminated. But when the Act is framed in that way, already the balance is tilted in a certain direction and it's an uphill battle to convince anybody that the freedom of religion dimension is one of the objectives of the law and therefore the exception or exemption for freedom of religion should be interpreted fulsomely in order to provide the adequate protection to freedom of religion that ought to be given because of the international covenant on civil and political rights. So, so with, those, with the objects cast in those terms of you know, eliminating as far as possible or language like, like that, uh, if, if I'm correct in what you're saying, the courts, when they're looking at those exemptions, which are really uh, a bit of a stumbling block to achieving those objectives, the court has to look at those exemptions and interpret them in a way that best achieves those objects of the legislation. So that means that those exemptions and exceptions are, tend to be interpreted very narrowly, uh, I, I presume. It, it can happen that way. I mean, you still see usually responsible judges when interpreting these provisions recognising that they're there to protect freedom of religion. And so the objective is that. But nonetheless, when you get into the detail, when the court does that balancing exercise and working out exactly how extensive the freedom of religion is in terms of its protection, you find that at the end of the day, there tends to be, there's a tendency to minimise the freedom of religion. Just on the borders, on the margins, these are all marginal gains. But if you're sitting there on the border, if your case involves the borderline, 
then you actually lose because of that borderline interpretation. If you're sitting squarely in the middle of the protection, well, the protection probably applies to you with little doubt. Uh, but that's the, the nature of law is the real debate often is around the margins and the periphery and exactly where those lines are to be drawn. And so if you have an organisation that is sitting somehow on the boundary, arguably, you could win or you could lose and the lawyers with their best advice are not 100% sure, it's all going to come down to the balancing judgment of a tribunal or a court uh, and when doing that, these questions of the objectives of the Act have an influence on exactly how you balance it out in the end. So, yeah, I, I think freedom of religion is a, is a vulnerable right in Australia and this is where movements at a federal level to introduce more robust protections of freedom of religion focused on the freedom itself could do something to counterbalance this imbalance, I think, in the regime of the protection of freedom of religion in our country. So those people, a number of people who are opposing the federal law that you just mentioned, uh, talking about this law or proposed law as preferencing religion over other rights. But it sounds to me like from all you've been saying, it's really just catching up with, with the protections for other rights. Uh, to that international standard. It's not preferencing religion. It's merely catching up in the same way and the same protections as other rights already have. Um, uh, yes, I, I think so, Mark. And, and it's, it's mostly rhetoric when people say that. It, it's a little bit like being on the left or being on the right. What you regard as being left-wing or right-wing rather depends on where you yourself sit on that spectrum. Um, and so uh, I think it's a little bit like that when it comes to freedom of religion as well and whether you think that this is... Uh, balanced or not balanced. A lot of it depends on your perspective. So final question, and it's probably less of a legal one, more of a policy one, and uh, uh, you, you may wish to, to duck it if you, if you need to. Uh, from your experience, from your knowledge of this area of law, do you think we need to have uh, a more robust, positive protection for freedom of religion in Australia? Yeah, look, I, I think we do, Mark. Um, I think that it would be good if the federal parliament passed some laws that protected freedom of religion more robustly at a federal and by implication at a state and territory level. I think that there were some problems with the religious discrimination bill in its two forms uh, that the former Attorney General had promulgated um, prior to the COVID crisis. Um, I think that there are some promising sounds about the current Attorney General perhaps making um, a fresh start to an extent on these things, and I think that might be needed. Um, and I'm very supportive in principle of seeing some more robust, positive protections for freedom of religion given the circumstances and overall situation here in Australia as far as religious freedom is concerned, yes, very strongly. Wonderful. Look, uh, I know I could uh, sit here and listen to you and chat with you all day about uh, religious freedom and constitutional law. You are you are one of Australia's foremost scholars in this area and it's always great to catch up and to, to pick your brain and to get your wisdom around these areas. So do thank you for your, your time today, uh, Professor Nicholas Aroni. Uh, great to have you on our, our podcast. Absolutely a pleasure, pleasure, Mark. Anytime. Many thanks. <laughs>